Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Radamic. Berto Will is your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. We are going to have a great show for you today. Welcome aboard E2247. How is E2247 doing today? From all over the United States is E2247. Bridge MCP from Bennington, New York. Bennington, New York. I think I got that right, but it's upstate New York as well. AVQ, Brooklyn, New York. How are you doing, AVQ? Great to have you here. Uh, who else do we have in the house? We also have, I'm scrolling down. I'm scrolling down. Not just a few in the house today. E2247, Yvette Avery Herod, where is she? Don't see her in yet. But anyhow, folks, welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Uh, Michael said, Egberto, the conservatives in the chat keep going on about our southern border and drug crisis. So I wonder uh, what they'll have to say about this on the screen. Well, I don't know what you have on the screen, but I'm going to look. CSIV receipt. What is that? What is that? Okay, amount ordered. I'll go ahead and... You see, you're forcing me to analyze this beforehand. But anyway, Nick Mark, MD, Nick Mark tweeted, Damn, under Trump, the White House medical unit was a pale mill. Thousands of Ambien and Prodigal per month. Worse for a clinic that doesn't typically do procedures with moderate sedation. They sure are. They order in pro a prodigious quantity of morphine, fentanyl, verse. They were dope heads. I read that article. You know what is so funny about it? You think about why Trump always looked like he's hyped up? I wonder why. All right, Esquire. Apparently, the Trump White House medical unit was handling pills. You guys can read that. I won't read that out now because I have a long interview to play. Uh, and, and he brought a whole lot of stuff about the pills. Hey, take a look at those uh, particular links that, that uh, Michael Rodden has placed in the chat. It's well worth the read. I've read some of them already. Well, one of them already. Uh, let's see what else we've got here. Who else is in the house? Yvette Avery Howard, she made it in. Good afternoon, Yvette. Great to see you. Melanie Keelan uh, from Yvette from Atlanta, Georgia. Melanie Keelan from uh, Barcelona, Spain. Uh, Binghamton, not Bangington. Binghamton. Binghamton. Binghamton is where she's from. All right, let's see. AVQ says, just got home shopping. Made it a few minutes before the show. Great to see you here. Eric, House, uh, Eric Hayes is also in the house. And let's see what else we got here. People are coming in. People are coming in. Hey, guys. I have a I have a long interview for you, but before the long interview, I want to play a piece for you about the border because you know everything is about the border, the border, the border, 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 border. Let's look at this little report here, and then we'll take it on the other side. Check this out. Let's be clear: there is, in fact, a border problem. A lot of people are coming into the United States from many Latin American countries, whether it be Venezuela whether it be Guatemala, Honduras, uh, El Salvador, Haiti, Haiti. And one of the reasons why it is uh, U.S. policy that is causing displacement, uh, farmers that no longer have their lands, uh, different stuff within trade treaties that have put these countries at disadvantages. And what do people do? They want to take care of their families, so they migrate. But these things should happen in an orderly fashion. Right now, it is not one of the reasons why we need to have good legislations to get these bills passed. Currently, Republicans are, are creating a havoc not to get this, uh, le these legislations passed. But what Greg Abbott and many of the Southern governors and not even some of them in the Midwest are doing is create trying to use the immigrants, these immigrants, as some sort of a tool, a bludgeon. And they're lying to the American people or getting them afraid of something they don't need to be afraid of by trying to militarize the border as if there is an invasion of people coming. 
as if these people that are coming over here are they are so dangerous. The truth is they're much less dangerous than the people right here in the United States proper. In fact, the rule, if you take a look at the polls, etc., you you will notice that they are actually much less dangerous than the United States population as a whole. Because why? They don't want to get caught. They don't want to be deported. But the governor and all these guys are grandstanding with exactly what to do. So let's listen to this, who, uh, this little snippet here and listen to what the woman has to say at the end where she points out that this is nothing but a scam by Governor Abbott and all these Republicans who are trying to make an issue of that isn't the case and not solve the issue that should be solved. Check this out. David Noriega in Eagle Pass, Texas. David, it's good seeing you. How what is being discussed in Washington playing out where you are? Yeah, Jose, Eagle Pass is a pretty small city on the border, and it's become really the center stage in this national political drama. The main way this is playing out here is in this conflict between uh, Republican Governor Greg Abbott and the federal government. Uh, that All of this is, is connected, right? And I've been talking to some of the people who live here in Eagle Pass, some locals, and a lot of them sort of resent that they've been pulled into this political conflict that they didn't ask to be a part of. Uh, you know, since I've been here, we've, we've been spending a lot of time in, in and around Shelby Park, which is this big park right on the river that, that residents of Eagle Pass are used to using a lot. Families, families use it almost every day, but uh, Texas authorities shut it down in order to prevent the Border Patrol from using the park to process arriving migrants as they had been, particularly last month when migrants arrived in, in really, really large numbers. So I spoke to Juanita Martinez. She's actually the, the chair of the local county Democratic Party who kind of came to the park to argue with the National Guardsmen who weren't letting her and other people in. I want to play you a, a short clip of what she said. Take a listen. The residents here in Maverick County and Eagle Pass, we know the real story. And everybody that's smart enough to know there has there is no danger. There is no invasion. None of this is stopping immigrants from crossing. It's just a political show. I spoke to a city official too, Jose, who said that the, the city is starting to, to bear some costs in relation to this, uh, this activity by the state. And they're wondering, you know, who's going to take care of that in their, in their already pretty meager budget. Let's be clear. There is money to be made here. All these right wingers that are riling you right wing folks that follow them up. What they're doing is picking your pockets. You know, that caravan that's coming from Virginia, they're picking your pocket, $144,000. Is what they raise for that. Why don't they raise $144,000 and help the needy? You know, all those barbed wires that they're putting in this particular park that people like to use. Oh, I wonder which company was awarded that contract to put down all that barbed wire. I wonder which co company was awarded the contract to use Texas excess funds to place an army on the border. Who pays for it? You do. You do. Your money that could have been going to teachers, your money that could have been going to educators, your money that could have been going to fixing roads, your money that could have been going to health care, it's going to a false premise. And we take it. And as we try to tell folks, stop being hoodwinked, we pay for it. Folks, open your eyes. This is a scam. 
The, the, the border issue is a scam. The crime issue is a scam. The people wanting to make money on bails and, and private prisons, it's a scam. The people trying to make money on the barbed wires and the holding tanks, and all, it's a scam. People are people. Most people are good. Most people are just trying to survive. Stop being hoodwinked. Stop being hoodwinked. Stop being hoodwinked. Anyway, uh, good evening, Patrick Patricio Baron. Patrick Baron, welcome to Politics and Right. And as well, I think I see Melissa Bowie. How are you doing? Beautiful. Melissa Bowie is in the house with us as well. Hey, let's continue the program. I have a very important interview. This is an interview with the person who wants to be the next district attorney of Harris County, likely the most powerful district attorney in the entire state of Texas. Want you to listen to this, and then we'll take it on the other side. By the way, this is the kind of stories that apply nationally. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. Today, we're honored once again, born and raised in Harris County. Sean grew up with outspoken activist parents who marched for civil rights in the 60s and instilled in him a powerful sense of empathy and justice. After his mom tragically succumbed to addiction, Sean stepped up and helped raise his younger siblings. He attended St. Thomas High School, graduated from the University of Houston with a bachelor's in American history and later a JD from the Law Center. He served as prosecutor with the Harris County District Attorney's Office for 11 years, including six years as the division supervisor of the office's vehicular crimes division, where he became a familiar face on local news, as we all saw, as he personally responded to hundreds of fatal accident scenes. Folks, we're here with Sean Tier. Sean, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm wonderful. How are you? I am doing fine. I'm doing fine. I think this is probably a second or third round, actually third round. Uh, yep. Let me just say that, um, first of all, thank you for the for talking to us. Uh, the, the, the race is coming to us pretty close right now. Uh, how are you feeling about it? I, I feel great. Um, I feel energized. It, it's uh, this is my first foray into into being a candidate, and it's mm-hmm. it's eye opening. But it is uh, it's really it's it's exciting to get out into the different communities and just talk to people and listen to their stories. So I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And you're right, we're getting real close. You've been all over the county, as I see now. Um, You've gotten quite a bit of endorsements, my friend. Yeah, it, Let us hear about some of those. I, I, I am, to put it bluntly, I was even surprised at some that you got. Go ahead. Well, yeah, every one of them has has just humbled me more and and honored me. Um, Commissioner Ellis, Judge Hidalgo, um, this morning, uh, Mayor Sylvester Turner came out. Um, Rusty Harden has oh, endorsed really? me. Um, you know, a, a number of legislatures, Gene Wu, um, John Rosenthal. It, it's just been it's been incredible, not to mention all of the groups, um, labor, the AFL-CIO has endorsed me. Uh, the LGBTQ plus caucus has endorsed me just last uh, week. Yeah, I, I saw that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Working Families Party. It, there's there's just been such a groundswell of of support that it 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 really does. It makes me feel amazing. It seems to me like you've you've done a good job in establishing both a grassroots rapport, which is necessary, as well as one who can speak to the establishment. I think you need somebody in there who can actually uh, can, can deal with both sides, because that is what uh, 
all our stakeholders, if you will. And as uh, as as being stakeholders, that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, you've you've centralized on on five specific topics: fighting for women's uh, reproductive rights, uh, leading on gun violence prevention, ensuring second chances for those who deserve it, fixing our broken cash bail systems, and eliminating the criminal court backlog. First yeah. of all, the middle one that you have there is something that I want to talk about first. It's interesting because, as it turns out, the crime rate is has been for some time undulating and now fallen. And um, what upsets many of us, specifically those who are progressives, is when crime is used as a bludgeon as opposed to something that needs to be taken care of in an intelligent fashion. We don't, everybody who gets uh, faced with crime, the crime rate is 100%. For the vast majority of people, they never see crime except to what they see on TV. So yeah. my thing is, that middle part that you say, ensure second chances for those who deserve it, usually comes with another thing, preventing crime in the first place. Tell me your thoughts on that. That you could not be more right. That that is that is the pinnacle and the pillar of my platform in this in this one issue. We've got to be smart about how we go about the entire system. When you have people and you that engage in some risky, sometimes criminal behavior, especially on the younger side, I'm talking 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds. If you give them a criminal record. For a relatively minor offense, you have, in all likelihood, thrown those people away from being successful, productive members of society. And when you do that, you set them on a path to eventually becoming our worst nightmare, the violent predators on the streets, because really their options are so limited. So we have got to be smart about what we do with those individuals in the first place. The, the restorative justice programs that have been implemented in a lot of successful ways around this country need to be brought here. We need to be focused on narcotics possession. We need to be focused on the nonviolent low level offenders and give them a different path forward. I think a lot of that is going to be partnering with our trade unions. A lot of that's going to be partnering with other community-based stakeholders to give those young people, and quite frankly, not even young people, just people, hope and a different path for a more successful outcome. And we're not going to save them all. We, we can't. But if we save a good percentage of them, if we drop the recidivism rate to a to a manageable number, now we are being more proactive on the front end. And what that also does is give me and my office and law enforcement as a whole much more bandwidth and ability to go after those who are really making a career out of out of violating and preying on the communities. And there's no difference. Uh, the, the crime rate is the same in Fifth Ward, in Sunnyside, in South Houston, as it is in River Oaks. We just police it differently. So we've got to be mindful about the way we go about that as well. You know, uh, the difference between leaders and political demagogues is the, ab the ability to go to your constituency and, and, and explain to them why you take the positions you take and not try to work on the visceral fear that people normally have. And that is, uh, speak to me about that, because I think 
I, I think for those who are going to buy the rhetoric from some about crime, I'll be strong on crime. I'll lock them up and throw away the keys. They don't realize what they're doing for the tax system. They don't realize that the people who vote for that behavior are actually voting to pay more taxes and actually voting for a more violent society. Finish that for me. You, you could not be more right. Um, look, I, we have shown that the broken windows theory of locking everyone up and giving them a criminal record, all it does is delay the inevitable because you're going, you're creating the next generation in huge mass quantities of the people who have no other option than to come out and victimize society. That it's been proven time and again that it doesn't work. It makes people feel safer for a little bit, but it doesn't make the community safer in the whole or in the long run. There are ways that are data-driven and proven to go about making our society safer. Those are the ways and those are the things that I will and can communicate to our community as a whole. And I promise you, in very short order, we are going to see success because Harris County in Houston is positioned like no other jurisdiction in the entire country. We have one of the most amazing commissioner's courts right now. It's comprised of Commissioner Ellis, Commissioner Garcia, Commissioner Briones, and Judge Hidalgo, who know that this is the right way to go. We've got district and county court judges who want to work through this smartly. We've got law enforcement who's on board with this. All we need is someone at the top of the DA's office, the warehouse for all of it, driving the train for true reform while still keeping us safe. And that's what we're going to do. It is important for the audience at large to understand that many of those who uh, believe in the concept of just throwing the book at folks or just arresting and locking up, they have a vested financial interest in that, in, 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 in that, um, in that method, if you will. Uh, what, it, what are the impact of bail bondsmen on our legal system? And tell us a little bit about what you would do as opposed to what your opponent, Kim Og, would. Or has well, you know the the, the bail bonds industry is one that has profited um, off of the backs of poor people for generations. It, it, there's there's no other way around it. Um, and so I, I made a pledge in September uh, not to accept a dime from the industry. I challenged my opponent to do the same. She declined and has subsequently accepted uh, a pretty significant amount of money from that industry. She's in their pocket. Um, so she is going to continue to perpetuate those people in that industry from making money off poor people who simply want to get out of jail before they're convicted. I am going to really, really embrace the risk model that has been proven to be the one that shows future danger and risk. And we're going to be asking two very simple questions before we decide whether someone should be released pre-trial. And that is, are they a continuing danger to the society? And if so, I don't care if they're Warren Buffett or they spent last night under I-10, they don't get out. Or are they a flight risk? Same issues. And if the answer is no to those, then they need to be out 
until their trial. We don't have room in the jail. Just today, it came out that we're paying $50 million to transport people awaiting trial to different jails in different states. That's unacceptable. So we need to go forward smartly. But we also have to have an eye toward people that commit crimes while they're out on bond. The, these the, the anecdotal stories of someone out on 14 bonds that subsequently commits a murder, that's not the judge's fault. The judges don't have a vehicle to hold someone at no bond without the participation of the DA's office. So every time you read that, understand that is the district attorney's fault and her office for not filing what's called an 11B motion to hold that person at no bond. I think, I, think exactly need to, I think you need to repeat that because too often the judges have gotten a whole lot of blame and the right has come uh, against them for specific reasons. What they're trying to do is eliminate them in court. But likewise, on, uh, they've done so sort of under the tacit acceptance of the DA. So please repeat that. The DA is, ha has a responsibility if they think a criminal is one that shouldn't be out there to make the case to the judge. Otherwise, Austin is the one who wrote the laws. Right. And, and Austin and is controlled by a whole different sect of people. That's right. And and the Texas Constitution says that no one can be hold, held without bond pre-trial unless you are charged with capital murder, unless you have been out on bond for an indicted felony and you subsequently commit a new crime. If you do that, then the only way that an individual can be held without another bond is if the district attorney's office files an 11B motion and goes forward on that motion, the judge cannot do that, do it themselves. And quite frankly, it's not just the Republicans that have attacked the judges for three or four years about this. It is not even the tacit approval of the elected DA. She has been on the front line attacking these judges and shifting the blame from her office to them. And it's wrong. It is patently wrong. And she should be held accountable. And I, I, I agree 100 percent that that stuff of shifting the blame where it doesn't belong, is it's, it's harmful. Now, we have an overcrowding situation in the jail. What is your solution to the overcrowding of our jails? It, surprisingly, it's a fairly easy solution. It's three parts. The first part is we are going to fix the way we accept charges. We're going to get back to a, a method of having experienced prosecutors talking to the police on the scene when they're trying to arrest someone and determining whether that arrest should happen. And if it should, helping the officer strengthen the case at the time. We don't have that gatekeeping facility or we don't have that gatekeeping ability right now. We're going to go back to that. That's going to reduce the number of overall filings. Secondly, on the back end, we are going to trust our elected judges. We're not going to scapegoat them. We're not going to attack them. We're going to trust them. And so if someone doesn't want a trial, if they simply want to see what the judge is going to do punishment wise or guilt innocence wise, we're going to let them do it which means we can turn a lot of these low-level misdemeanor and felonies around where this victim and defendant get their day in court within three to six months, as opposed to three to six years. And that's going to drastically shrink our jail population. And third, we are going to really embrace 
the narcotics and mental health diversion programs that have been sorely lacking in the current administration's approach to this. And when we stop criminalizing and mental health and criminalizing simple addiction, we're going to have a lot more room in the jail and we're going to have a lot more room in the prosecutor's offices to focus on the cases that matter. Those three pillars are going to be the way that we reduce the jail overcrowding in a drastic way in an incredibly quick period of time. If elected, uh, you will likely be the most powerful enforcer of the law in this state, having been doing so for the largest county. Uh, one of the things that uh, a district attorney must have is something known as discretion with the law. Very important. Something that we find uh, so far has been lacking. When uh, when a, a black man who uh, goes to, to uh, vote and is made scared that, well, he was a few months or whatever the case is away from voting and you throw the book at him it's, uh, and, and you, tr you try like hell to bring him to justice for something not really done where you had the discretion, that's a problem. When you bring charges against officials and it seemed like the officials that you're constantly haggling with are either uh, of the not majority population or in the, in the case, I know you may not want to talk about this, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. It seemed like uh, the, the people that get charged of uh, political stature here are the people of minority hue, if you will, uh, whereas one would have discretion. The DA has often claimed her hands are tied in investigations, but the truth is more complex than that. What is a DA actually required to do versus what the incumbent has done? Like I said, many people have asked me to ask you this, and that is, look, this DA seemed to have a propensity to go after a certain group of folk and let others off. Please. Yeah, I, 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 I quite frankly couldn't have said it any better. You, you look at people like that individual who was trying to vote, stood six hours in line, and she took him all the way to a grand jury, I believe twice, but over the period of almost a year, keeping that individual in limbo for trying to exercise a right. It, it, you don't have to do it that way. I've been in that office for 11 years. You don't have to do it that way. Of course, we want the elected district attorney in that office to investigate crimes, but investigations can look any way the DA wants it to look. In that case, it's obvious she wanted to use that, her power as an intimidation tactic against a black man trying to exercise a right. And then you talk about the commissioners, you talk about Judge Hidalgo, you talk about those where she takes them as far as they possibly can, all the way to grand juries and sometimes to some pretty weak indictments. You're exactly right. And I'll take you one step further. Dr. Hassan Gokul, oh, the yes. doctor who is simply trying to inoculate the population in an unprecedented global pandemic, who distributed nine doses of a vaccine to groups of people nine doses that were going to expire at midnight that night. And instead of giving the man a medal for trying to figure it out, she not only accepted charges, but when the judge found no probable cause, she kept that man in limbo for six months before she finally presented it to a grand jury, 
who did the exact same thing and found no probable cause. Those are all part and parcel of the same issue. And you're exactly right. They're all minorities. The one who didn't even get presented to a grand jury, the white man, Jared Woodfill, who very credibly embezzled and stole millions of dollars from his clients. She instructed her prosecutors to sit on that case until the statute of limitations ran without a single presentation to a grand jury. I can't tell you why I wasn't in inside those decision-making points, but it certainly paints a pretty stark contrast and not a very flattering picture of an elected district attorney. And and that is one of the reasons that I, you know, again, uh, I, I asked this question because a lot of folks who know I was interviewing, you said, please ask this because this is a problem that we, that we shouldn't be having now. Um, about the women's issue, um, I, I, you are the, the, will, would be the district attorney of Harris County. That falls out of the realm specifically of whatever it is that the governor and his pew decides to do. Um, what can you do to make lives easier for those in Harris County who may be persecuted by the state law? Well, when you think about it, we are on the ground. We are ground zero of these draconian laws that they've passed. They have criminalized a woman seeking reproductive health care. And the top law enforcement officer in the third largest county in the country certainly should and needs to have a position on that. So, yes, this is central to my campaign because I truly believe as a father of two daughters, as someone who's been married to my wife for 18 years, I've got nieces, I've got sisters. This is personal to me. I believe that a woman's decision-making on her body is between herself and her doctor, full stop. It certainly shouldn't involve Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick, or anyone else in Austin, or law enforcement here in Harris County. I am committed to ensuring that women have the ability to go seek life-saving reproductive health rights without fail, full stop. But what I have to do is investigate anything. And by having to say that, I truly believe that I'm costing women their lives. Women will die because we cannot say we're not going to prosecute a case. Women are going to either not seek the healthcare provider that they need, or they're going to seek back room, back alley abortions like we're in 1950 again, and we're going to see women die. So what I am committed to doing is doing everything in my power and within the law to make sure that women have access and I will use what is an incredibly large microphone and pulpit by being the elected DA of the third largest county. And I'll go be in Austin and I will testify and bring more and more notoriety and publicity to this issue. And I'll make them tell me no to my face. What we have had as the current DA is not only someone who hasn't been to Austin once to testify about this issue, but also the only elected Democrat 
in the state of Texas that didn't join in a letter pledging not to prosecute these crimes. Every other one joined except for her. Well, you know, uh, you, you got me into uh, getting a bit political with this uh, conversation because, and I want to say this for the audience, you don't need to respond to this. But much of what uh, many find suspect with what the DA has done, mostly prosecuting people of not the majority, uh, not going after issues like uh, defending women's right to an abortion, uh, and 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 going with bondsmen and talking about the exploding crime rate that isn't really the fact, and not talking about using fixing crime before people monetize crime. That is exactly uh, what one would do if they wanted to triangulate in a democratic county by coming over the top with votes from the right. You don't have to comment on that, but uh, uh, that is what's called triangulation. And uh, in a county like this, if we allow that, or if folks in the county allows that to happen, then they would have gotten what they deserve. Anyway, uh, let me go ahead and um, ask a couple more questions. Sure. Specifically, um, let's. what are you going to do about this backlog that we have? Uh, in, in you know, because uh, I think the current count, uh, the current DA had gone to the commissioner's court and wanted to hire a whole bunch of folk in in there. But um, what would be your solution? Well, my solution to fixing the backlog is part and parcel to what we already talked about about reducing the jail population. All of that works together when we stop accepting every single charge that's presented to us. When we work through them in a timely fashion of three, six, nine months, as opposed to three, six, nine years, when we do all of that together with the smart, empathetic diversion programs, then you are going to see that backlog shrink just like you see the jail population shrink. And in the same time frame, these are all just ideas that if you went it's not like I'm a genius coming up with these. If you go talk to any one of the rank and file prosecutors that I've supervised for the last seven years, they tell you exactly the same plan I'm talking about. Everybody wants to see this happen. Every single person in the courthouse, defense attorneys, judges, prosecutors, they all want to. The only person that's not going forward with this smart plan is the current elected DA. It's interesting because it's that's it's not only the right thing to do, but it's also fiscally responsible. It costs the county less money, but that the, the, the less money that it costs the county <clears throat> is money not going into the coffers of a whole bunch of plutocrats. But we'd leave that alone. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Uh, um, you know, just how excited I am to restore and actually bring competence and integrity to that office. All of these plans, all of the things that we've talked about are critically important to everyday citizens of our community. But the thing that no one really understands is how bad it is for the DAs in there right now and how that affects your public safety. We are hemorrhaging 
good prosecutors and they're not leaving to go get rich. They're going to Fort Bend. They're going to work for Brian Middleton, who is an amazing leader and a very smart person and somebody I'm going to lean on innumerable times to go about figuring out how to work through this stuff. But they have to feel empowered. And when you have rank and file prosecutors in one of the largest law firms in the state, feel like they're trusted by their by their leadership, feel like they're empowered to do and follow their oath, which is to do the right thing, you're going to see justice be served. You're going to see cases that need to get dismissed be dismissed because they're not scared of the people above them. You're going to see empathetic diversions be granted by rank and file prosecutors because they're not worried about being thrown to the wolves. All of those things matter more than anything. And at the final part, when we can retain and maintain talent at the DA's office, the really violent bad guys get held accountable. Right now, we're losing more murders than we're winning. That should terrify everyone. I am the leader. I am the person that can do it. And when I'm in that office, the entire county will feel better. Sean Tear, candidate for Harris County District Attorney. It's been my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. Hey, Bert, thank you so much, man. I'm sure I'll see you soon, and I can't wait to be back on. So go ahead and ask whatever, and we'll continue the show. If, if uh, you guys don't have anything that you want me to talk about, I'll have to shut the show down early and then just go process it for you guys to see later. So 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Questions? Anything you want me to talk about before I before I kind of end the program early? Bring us hope, Egberto. I will bring us hope. Let me tell you. Notice we crashed. I could have done one of two things. I could have thrown my hands up into the air, and I could have said, "Oh my God, it's the end of the show," and uh, you know, let me just to hell with it. But then I said. Our folks are out there listening. What can we do? And I thought about it. Wait a minute. My restreamer has a back channel. Maybe if I use the back channel, I can still go ahead and finish the show. And even though it's not polished like using Wirecast or production software, it's a web-based system. At least we can use it. But I tell you what it did for me. And here's a positive thing, Melanie. Because this has happened, it gives me a reason to actually learn how to use this impromptu backup channel that I'm using to, uh, to come on out here. So that is what we're doing. Anyhow, Eric Hayes says, Sean is not sympathetic to victims as he wants Harris County to be San Francisco with all the crap. I suggest you visit San Francisco. You know, they highlight San Francisco's portions that have the the um, the people living on the street like they do in L.A. I wish they would do that in Houston as well. But, you know, Houston has told the federal government, oh, we've declared our homeless problem, which we haven't. Okay. So um, I don't think it's as bad as, as one might think. All right, folks. Uh, any more statements before I close a bit early if I don't hear anything out of you? I'm so sorry this has happened. I promise you one thing, though, the next time 
I will be ready, now that I know that this backup system here can work, I will be ready in case an eventuality happens like that, to be ready with this backup system that has some form of, um, what's the word, that I can also implement videos. I don't know how to do that yet, so I'll, I'll learn how to do that in this backup system here. But anyhow, uh, let's see. Melanie says, thank you, everyone. It's always a pleasure. And E2247. So I think I'm going to close it right now. I want to thank all of you for sticking with me. Like I said, at 8 o'clock, I will have a version of this show today ready to play. And you can watch it then. And uh, tomorrow morning at 6, I will be playing the Sean Tier interview in full. Anyhow, so without further ado, I want to thank all of you for sticking around. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics on Right. You guys know how I end this baby. I am what? Out. Anybody remember John Bolton? John Bolton used to be that national security advisor. I think he was a national security advisor for uh, President Trump. I think he also worked for George W. Bush. And um, we actually used to consider Bolton a right-wing war crime, war, you know, war-mongering nut. That's how we looked at, at uh, John Bolton. And now, because we haven't had Donald Trump as the president of the United States, and him in his critique of Donald Trump, somehow we have shifted our thinking process, and he doesn't look as nut as he does as he used to. And interestingly, his his description of Donald Trump is quite is 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 quite well said. But more importantly, his push to ensure that this guy doesn't become president is one that we should listen to. And, it, you know, uh, like I said, he looked like a nutcase in those days. But the one thing I think Donald Trump is able to do is to let people, no matter where they are ideologically, but still believe they are uh, an, an American, a real American citizen, one that really cares about the well-being of the country, albeit not necessarily the way a good part of us do. Well, you know what? Uh, they have a part to play. Let's listen to how John Bolton describes Trump and what he thinks. Teresa Hutchison, who were critical of Trump, need to keep making the case uh, because there's yet a chance that we might deny Trump the nomination. Do you think Nikki Haley is qualified to be president? Well, look, I'd vote for a cardboard cutout for president at this point. And I think she's more qualified than Donald Trump, which I'll concede isn't saying much. But you would not vote for the, for the Democratic likely. <laughs> no, and I didn't. I didn't in 2020. I, I wrote in the name of a conservative Republican because there was none about. I'm, I think I'm, I'm in the middle of a two front war. One is the philosophical war against the Democratic Party, which is a very serious matter. The other is against the, the danger, the risk that Donald Trump poses. And it's not a happy position to be in. But uh, but that's where it is. And to, to you, it's his character. It's his competence or, or lack thereof. Uh, he, he's not fit to be president. One reason is uh, is his character. He doesn't have a character flaw. He doesn't have any character at all. 
The one thing that concerns him is Donald Trump. And that's why national security and domestic policy are hostage to whatever his own political fortunes are. That was short and sweet. But the, the, the part that really got to me was, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Don, Donald Trump doesn't have a flawed character at all. He simply has no character. And someone with a flawed character is much better than one with no character. Because that which has no character, you can paint whatever you want onto that. And that is exactly who Donald Trump is. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.